People Not Titles podcast is brought to you by Land Trust Title Services, your partners for results. And, um, so uh, thank you, Lucas, for taking time out. Yeah, no, no. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it, Steve. Um, so getting into this, we could go to the next slide, Ian, if you're in control of that. But I also want to know how many of you, and I know I can't see everyone on the screen, but how many of you are commercial real estate brokers or consider yourselves commercial real estate? Okay, some hands. Um, I know some of you are off camera, but um, usually when I teach a class uh, about commercial, I, you know, I guess it did surprise me only the first time that I get a lot of residential brokers who want to learn more about commercial transactions. So, um, and that's completely fine. And, and so, you know, uh, I think the topics that we kind of go through and what we'll go through today, which is primarily in environmental uh, issues in a commercial transaction, uh, due diligence, which is also really a part of environmental is part of due diligence. And then uh, LOIs, letters of intent. We're going to go through that. I know we're limited on time, so I'll talk fast, but stop me at any point. I'm not, you know, typically when I teach a class, you know, we, we hand out like a case study and I'll kind of make some reference to uh, that case study here because I feel like it's always more helpful to have like a real life situation and learn from that as opposed to just looking at, at slides. So um, this this case study that I provide here, imagine like a uh, it's a real transaction that I did in, in Wicker, Wicker Park. It's been a long, long time now, I think over 10 years, but it essentially had about uh, six retail spaces on the street level and about 18 residential apartments above. Um, so, you know, there's some references to that in this in the, in in these slides, which you don't need to necessarily pay attention to. But when when necessary, I'll let you know why there are these references. Because if you don't have the materials, the case study itself, it may not make much sense. In any event, so having that in mind, um, if you could picture that type of building, you know uh mixed use right that's what we call it um because part of it is for commercial use and, and part of it is for residential use so keep that in mind as we kind of go through this um so environmental concerns uh obviously if you're representing a commercial uh client in in purchasing a a property the environmental concerns almost always uh come up I'll, I'll, you know, so here, when is it necessary? Um, whether you're buying vacant land, older commercial um, or industrial land uh, and bank required. So bank required is anytime you're getting a loan on a commercial property um, and not buying it all for cash, I could almost guarantee you a phase one environmental uh, report is going to be required. And so here in in our in our kind of case study one of the retail spaces that's on the first floor is a dry cleaning facility so keep that in mind as we kind of go through this um so a phase one environmental what what is it uh here quoted from circla uh the purpose of the phase one assessment is to identify really sources of environmental contaminants okay those are uh, things that are uh, here, asbestos-containing material, biological hazards, lead-based lead substances, 
etc those are also known uh in the industry uh i gotta get the uh the uh, the the word exactly correct because sometimes it's well there's two things there's there's volatile organic compounds but in general um these are uh oh here recognized environmental conditions okay recs recognized environmental conditions are essentially what you're trying to identify through a phase one that's generally um the way you know the easiest way to to discuss this and recognize environmental conditions are things such as asbestos any type of hazardous material uh radon gas levels etc etc so phase one and i don't uh, we'll go into the next slide too but um phase one is very limited by really the environmental company that performs it only kind of does like a investigation into and research into like historical data right so they'll look at um any type of permits like what it was used for in the past um whether there's any history of like underground um tanks um any history of of you know way back when it could have been used as maybe even things that are common like a dry cleaner uh an auto body shop a gas station those things are all like red flags so a phase one is going to look into that and, and first determine whether there's any concern at all through like historical data and, and research because if, if you don't have that then you don't really need to go to the next step which would be a phase two how much does it cost Ooh, that's probably an old number there, fifteen hundred plus. Uh, <laughs> I think that's still still possible, but you know, just for inflation, uh, we'll make make it two thousand plus. So that's something that's typically something that a bank is always going to require. Now, sometimes clients will ask me, "Well, the, the seller, you know, has a phase one that they used uh, when they were buying the property, and, and maybe they're you know selling it and." It, uh, in, in a pretty quick amount of time. So the phase one is uh, is fairly new. I haven't seen many times where a bank isn't gonna want its own new phase one. So unlike, oh, sometimes it's similar to like a survey, right? Where you need a, a newer one, um, but sometimes you could get away with an older one. Here, you, you typically will need a, a phase one, regardless of whether there is an older one uh, that, that the seller may have. So let's flip to the next slide. Um, before I go into the additional um, due diligence part, I wanted to talk about something that isn't on here, which is phase two. If your phase one determines that um, there's potential for contaminants, um, then you know potential for recognized environmental conditions, then likely the bank is gonna require you to do a phase two. So in this case study that we had, there sure enough was a uh, dry cleaning facility. Now, the thing is with these days, what's different than back in the day is that these days, if you have a dry cleaning facility, it may not be the worst thing in the world because most of these dry cleaning facilities do the cleaning offsite. Um, so you see the dry cleaning trucks, they, they take the, the, the clothes offsite to a different um, facility that's not part of the retail space. 
and really the retail space is just used for collecting and then returning the the clothes in our case the dry cleaning facility actually uh cleaned the 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 clothes on site so what was required was a phase two phase two is the actual physical examination of the site um so depending on what it is if you have concerns environmental concerns typically what would be done is borings um borings into the ground into the soil even if you have a dry cleaner they may do a boring right through the middle of the floor of the store in order to do a proper examination of um you know in a phase two of the soil the soil then will you know by looking at that um doing that boring and borings sometimes are even done in multiple places we'll see what contaminants are potentially in the soil if there are the the phase two continues with the remediation scope of it so how do we get the contaminants out of the soil how do we make this um a property that does not need to be um you know that that is safe to sell and that a bank uh loaning money on the sale will be okay with so that there's not any future concerns any future uh risks that that uh the bank would undertake and in that case the buyer undertakes so with a phase two the costs can be very significant okay so if we have fifteen hundred two thousand dollars for a phase one the phase two depends on you know the scope of what needs to be done and if there's remedial work in our case here i think what ended up happening is that it cost about fifty thousand dollars um now the, the sale if i remember correctly was about gosh i want to say it um close to like 10 million ish 11 if i remember correctly so um that's you know comparatively it's not a huge huge number but it's significant enough i mean no one's going to want to take you want to pay that the question i always get is who pays for that right um it's it's the buyer's uh bank that requires the phase one it's the buyer really that that is asking for it and needs it and needs it in order to close so shouldn't the buyer pay for these costs certainly the phase one the buyer should pay for it but on the phase two the seller now knows that the seller has a problem so if this deal doesn't go through it's similar to like if you had you know a residential deal that that has, has found mold um now the seller knows now the seller and you as the agent have to inform them that they have to disclose the knowledge of mold and and while we might as well just get it remediated um so typically there's going to be some negotiation on who needs to do this uh i think in this case honestly there was a split like down the middle where both sides um chipped in for the cost of of the remediation um so you know other than that you know, with environmental concerns we talked about the phase one and phase two which is typically what comes up in these sales and and how to get by the environmental concerns you, but you could have other things there's underground there's usts underground storage tanks um that were often used sometimes to heat facilities in, in the past or especially 
in the case of a property that was a, a gas station that had underground storage tanks. Why are those a, a concern? Because over time, those will typically start to leak. Um, and then hazardous material, material gets in the soil and that becomes quite a problem. So, um, you know, they're, they're especially a concern if you want to redevelop land, uh, tear something down that's been there for a while and, and redevelop it. Um, usually if you have vacant land that's been vacant for a long time, while you, you'll need a phase one, you're probably more in the clear, um, depending on how long it's been actually vacant. So those are, those are environmental concerns that often come up. Are there any questions on that topic? If anyone wants to jump in and ask a question before we get into the more other aspects of due diligence, please do. No? Okay. So other aspects of due diligence, that's the kind of the other topic, although, you know, it's, it's, the environmental is certainly part of your, your due diligence. Um, zoning in commercial, right? Um, uh, zoning, and, and what I mean by that is not only determining the zoning, but also potentially changing the zoning if you need to, or determining whether you will have to change the zoning. So when is it necessary? Here's the made up address that we used, 1200 Agent Avenue. In the case of our case study, um, it wouldn't be uh, necessary. Why? Well, if you had all the information, the information is that the the buyer is buying this, uh, you know, investment, is this as an investment property that's already existing, has been existing for years, um, and it doesn't really need zoning because we, you know, we, we would have to, we at least have to determine whether the zoning is appropriate, but chances are that if, if the property exists as it does and has been for a while, then it complies with the zoning requirements for the area. Um, however, when is it more necessary? In the situation of vacant land, if you're buying vacant land for development, or you just, or it may not be vacant, but it's going to be a teardown that you want to redevelop. Um, and so what, what do we do as a preliminary search for that? You guys could do it as agents. It doesn't take, you know, a zoning guru attorney or anyone else that's really uh, super knowledgeable of it. Simply, if you go to City of Chicago and you could just Google this City of Chicago zoning maps, they have a nice, um, you know, kind of portal with access to zoning maps where you just pretty much either you could, I think you could even mark the, the space, the area where you want to look at or type in the address. It takes you to that place and then um, it'll have a boundary and a color code for what zoning it's in. So imagine like if it's shaded, you know, yellow, it's RS1. If it's shaded uh, orange, it could be RS2, RS3, et cetera, et cetera. And then, and then commercial categories of, of zoning as well. So that's kind of the way you determine zoning. You know, people are kind of always um, mystified by like, isn't there some type of like, certificate i get that that says um you know what zoning it's in 
uh, and what classification, what category it's in. Well, you don't. You really don't unless we talk about the certificate of zoning uh, you know, compliance, which that is only for residential property containing five or few dwelling units. The purpose of the certificate uh, certificates of zoning, you may have that in even like your residential transactions. Let's say you're you're selling like a three flat, right? Um, that's when you're going to get a certificate of zoning. Um, but that doesn't have so much to do with actual zoning. Well, it does in a sense, but it's not like the purpose of it is to, to show you the category or classification of zoning. The purpose of more of it is whether, uh, is how many units are identified in that uh, residential property. So if you have a three flat, and this happens in Chicago all the time where uh, something is being sold as a three flat. But hey, then- thanks for listening to the People Not Titles podcast. We are brought to you by our great sponsors, Land Trust Title Services, your partners wow. for results. But then it turns out on the certificate of zoning, when you get that at closing, it shows two residential dwelling units. And that's what it'll be marked at. It'll literally say, you know, two residential dwelling units. Now you have a big problem. And that's something that you as agents, you know, may wanna get to if there's any doubt at the beginning of the deal, because the worst is to find that out at the end of the deal. Um, That, wait, this was represented. And sometimes not to fool anyone and not with any ill intent, but, this was represented as a transaction that that contained three um, residential dwelling units, but it turns out it's really only certified for two. That often happens because basements get turned into dwelling units without the city knowing. So you have, you know, those are those garden apartments, right? That we call them um, instead of basement units. So that that's a, I want you to understand the distinction. Finding out the zoning through the Chicago zoning maps is one thing. You could do that for residential, for commercial, and 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 then it'll, based on that classification, it'll tell you what you're able to build, right? If you have a commercial uh, classification for or you know or a mixed for mixed use that I just got a text from the agent for period. What's Kimberly? We could all hear you. Thank you for that information. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, moving on. So, if you if you have a classification of uh, what you know, whether it be residential or commercial, then you need to look into what does that allow. Okay, RS one, RS two, RS three, and then your commercial classifications will all tell you the density and the height restrictions, the uh, FAR restrictions, which is how much square footage you could have. But that is you know, for a much, uh, for, for another day to get into that topic. So that versus the certificate of zoning compliance, which applies only to residential properties containing five or fewer dwelling units. Um, and with that, there's zoning violations, right? You want to make sure none exist. And when you build, you will have no, uh, zoning violations. And if, if the property that you intended to build on the prop on the, on the, on the site does not fit um the zoning one of two options you change what you're going to build or you go into um you, you go in for a uh zoning change with the city um another aspect of due diligence real quick i know we already kind of got into this Lucas, i got a question sorry to interrupt yes go ahead 
Hi, uh, might be silly, but new here. Um, the zoning violation, is it traditionally an attorney's job to kind of look into that? And um, more specifically, the zoning? I mean, obviously, I as the agent can say, hey, it's a C2. But do you go in there uh, like in residential and look thoroughly if there's any verbiage of it going to be changing in the next year or if there's any zoning violations or yeah. is that traditionally the broker's job? No, I mean, whatever you could do, you know, I always tell agents just makes you that much better of an agent, right? Like if you if you do that, if I when I have think that like an agent brings to my attention, um, that typically they don't. I always feel like, wow, all right, this agent is on top of things. Like this is someone I want to to represent. You know, my potential clients in the future. So. It, while it, while it is more of an attorney's job um, to find that out, the same the same angle. If you're representing a seller and you're a listing agent, and you know about it, you definitely would, or your client knows about it, you definitely have to disclose it, right? So that's that's uh, that that would be more in line with the scope of your requirements as an agent. Um, certainly, if you could find something out, you have to disclose it. The, the worst thing is to wait for it, you know, wait till the end and, and then have it be a big problem and it blows up in your face. Um, all right. So, again, with soil tests. Hey, Lucas, yes. we, have, we have a question in the chat that I just noticed. Yeah. Are we required to obtain certificate of zoning compliance for residential properties? Containing five or fewer dwelling units. Yes. Yes, absolutely. You won't close without it. It'll be an exception on title. So not you, not you as the agent. That's typically so I don't know if that if that's specific to to you know you as the agent or or us as the attorneys or or the you know the seller itself. But you will not close um in the city of Chicago without having that certificate of zoning compliance. Um it's 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 a exception to title, so that's the way it works, right? The title company makes exceptions to title. One of those will be the requirement to obtain a zoning cert, and they won't issue title without waiving that exception. So, um, can you potentially close and not have that exception waived on title? Yes, but it would be very risky. I would never. Um, I would never suggest to do that. I mean, it doesn't take that long, so I would just put a pause on the closing, and 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 get it if and it's happened where you know people have the attorneys have forgotten to to obtain that. Um, I would not close without it, just because I've had so many situations where you know, unfortunately, yeah, you think it's a a, a three flat, it turns out only a, a two two dwelling units are certified as being legal. Okay. Um, unless there's anything else, I'll move on. The the new uh, soil tests. Again, we talked about soil tests within the scope of like a phase two, but there's also soil tests for suitability of soil for for building. So if you have vacant land, you know, absolutely, I would spend the money on on uh, on doing that. If you have land where you already have a structure, chances are it's suitable for development unless it's a completely different type of development, you know, higher in density, bigger, more square footage, et cetera. But the soil test determines what type of soil. If it's too clay, like there's too much clay and we'll make, 
will require for the foundations to be deeper. Deeper foundations mean more money. Those are all things that you need to know. Um, and are at least good to, you know, as agents for you to, to advise your client to do. All right, next slide. Due diligence, okay, continued. So the other thing is too, on like this case study that we have here, um, we have uh, leased, leased property, right? I told you at the beginning, we had 18 residential leases and eight retail commercial leases. So that is gonna be something that's so much different than doing residential is really getting into like the financial aspect of this deal. Because typically when you have a buyer all it is, all resident, all commercial property really is, unless it's for their intended use. If it's an investment property, it's a big math problem. That's all it is. Most of these buyers don't really care how you know sexy the property is, how new the um, fixtures are, and and the bathrooms are. I mean, in the end, you could have a brand new property that just isn't doing as well as an old property that's getting you know, better rent, has less expenses, is less um, of a tax liability, et cetera, et cetera. So what I mean by that, those are cap rates, right? You look at what income is being generated and you look at what expenses, what the expenses are. And that is gonna be key. So you wanna look at these things, uh, rent rolls. You, you typically, what I'd ask for is P&Ls, those are profit and loss statements or income statements um and and get and really get into the nitty gritty of you know through the rent rolls you know your income so that's pretty easy but you don't have a good grasp on expenses right so you want to really determine what all the expenses are bigger ones are property taxes right um and i don't not even mean i don't even mean to say like your mortgage because your mortgage is going to be particular to your buyer uh, or you know your your uh, monthly mortgage payment so uh, what I mean is things outside of that could be uh, utilities, right? Electrical, gas. Um, it could be things that require, oh, you know, snow removal, landscaping. Those are kind of like the ongoing trash removal. And then your capital expenditures, which are bigger ones, like replacement of a roof, replacement of a parking lot. See if that was done. Um, and then moving along, because I know I'm I'm dragging on here, feasibility. Part of your due diligence is going to be a feasibility. Sometimes, sometimes the buyer, if it's a really sophisticated transaction, will do a feasibility study, which um, lets them know based on zoning, based on the site, based, you know, site conditions, what can the the buyer build to get the most bang for its buck. Do you want commercial space? even if you could have it, or is residential gonna get you more money? How are the, you know, how are the taxes, property taxes gonna work if you have only residential versus residential and commercial? You know, on a, uh, on a new development too, like do you really, do you really, is it worth um, building 20 units just because you can? Um, or are we not taking into consideration the construction costs of that and maybe we'd be better off of doing a smaller project? It's particular to the buyer, and that's what a feasibility study. And those are, you know, typically we wouldn't do that as an attorney. We could help with like some consulting on it, but there are particular consultants that will will do that. And those probably run, you know, not cheap. Let's put it that way. Um, all right, moving on to the next slide. 
All right, so we're going to talk about real briefly as the last topic. LOIs um, isn't too complicated of a topic, but um, I actually just had someone that I talked to um, this week, and this and this question got brought up. This was they were you know seeking the the client the the agent called me their client was seeking to purchase some vacant land, and uh, the the question was whether we should present a letter of intent or just present a contract in of, in and of itself. I'll get into that. Um, well, I, I could probably actually just answer that question before we get into the, the aspects of it. Typically, on a, a letter of intent is used when the, the, the deal is more expensive, requires more due diligence, require, uh, is more you know sophisticated or complicated, meaning like here with the case study, we have 18 apartment units, uh, eight retail uh, commercial units, you know, you have a parking lot, you have a bunch of expenses in, and it's, and it's for, you know, millions and millions of dollars in excess of 10, let's call it. Yeah. I would start out with an LOI. Okay. We're not gonna, as, as an agent, you don't want to get the attorney involved. First of all, you don't want to use a boilerplate contract, right? That would be, that would be foolish in this case. It's just too sophisticated, too complicated to just use a boilerplate. There are some good ones. I'm not going to lie. Um, you know that that you know either Main Street or Car provides. But the more, let's just let's just say, the more expensive it is in general, the less likely you're going to want to use a boilerplate contract. So th that goes into your consideration. Um, you know, uh, so in this case, the case of our case study with the 18 apartments retail we're going to want an LOI um, the uh, and and the other part of the reason why I want you to use an LOI in this case it's because it's quicker right and you could do it actually um, you know you you I have oftentimes brokers that will give me an LOI that they already presented that's in the works and they say okay we need a definitive uh, contract based on this other times a, a, a broker will give me uh, the LOI to review before it's submitted to be like, hey, are we missing anything? So what do you need to not be missing? Number one, the parties, right? Who will be a party to the agreement? Pretty simple. Um, there's There's got to be language in it that there's it's non-binding. So that's important because honestly, if both parties sign off on it and it doesn't say that, that could be taken as a sufficient contract. There are no requirements really in the law of what you need in a real estate contract as opposed to any other contract. So if you have um, the parties, consideration, meaning identifying the money, identifying what's going to be purchased and mutual assent to those terms, that is all you really need. And an LOI is sufficient, is definitely sufficient to be a, uh, a binding contract if it doesn't say that it's non-binding so that's huge never never do an loi without that language um what's the purpose of it you want to flesh out the major deal terms right so um instead of going through this definitive purchase agreement where you have a attorney draft a 20-page agreement or so just to have it never be signed because it's going to fall apart you want um 
you want to uh, make sure the major deal terms are in there. I don't know if, Ian, can you really quickly go to the next slide and see if, and maybe I'll have you go back. Yeah, go, okay, so go back to that. Um, I know, I know, go back to the other one before there, please. Um, just want to finish this off. Um, you know, purpose, and it also psychologically commits the parties to enter into a definitive agreement. So once you have that, it's so much better than just talking and being like, hey, you know, we're going to write an offer, or we're going to get you something. This is like a pretty solid committed step. Um, and then you negotiate the business terms, right? So this is like it says, your time to shine. Those, what's on the LOI, like the main components of it, which Ian, you could get to the next slide, really are going to be what's on the definitive purchase and sale agreement. So this is not a time to put in a, a purchase price that is going to be, if you're representing a buyer, you know, much less on the, on the, on the actual final purchase and sale agreement. That is only going to piss off uh, the seller. And so you cannot change those terms significantly. What we do with the, with the final uh, purchase agreement is we add terms. We make it, you know, uh, we, we, for example, get into the due diligence aspect a lot more, you know, conditions of closing, et cetera, et cetera. But um, these key things that need to be in an LOI uh, are going to be also in the purchase and sale agreement. So key dates. The date for um, the purchase and sale agreement. So what I mean by that is we may need to enter into a purchase and sale agreement by this time. That kind of keeps the party's feet to the fire. You don't have to have that, but it's all, always good to do. Earnest money, how much earnest money, um, due diligence, uh, how much time is needed for due diligence, how much time is needed for closing. You're gonna have to have obviously the purchase price, um, Financing, whether you're going to have financing and potentially how much of it is going to be financed. Obviously, the less that's going to be financed, the more attractive to the seller. Um, and again, scope of your due diligence inspection, is it going to be 15 days? Is it going to be 30 days? Is it going to be 60 days? Uh, what are you going to want to see? Um, here we get a little repetitive. I told you that it's non-binding. Uh, the last two items are, are also very important that are often missed exclusivity during the LOI term. So if you have that date by which, you know, it, we have to uh, either enter into a final agreement or we don't, during that date, you don't want this property to be shopped around, right? If you're representing the buyer, you don't want the seller to keep the shopping this around and then be like, hey, we're out because just because we got a better price. That That is not fair to the buyer at this point. Although it could happen. It could happen, right? Um, and then finally, broker's compensation. You want to put that in there, okay? Let's make sure we know we've identified who the broker brokering parties are so that there's no surprises and that we don't go through, you know, this uh, purchase and sale agreement. So sometimes it could take a week, two weeks, you know, depending on how uh, lazy or, or, or busy the attorneys are, just to then find out that like, oh, wait, you know, we weren't responsible for that agent because commercial real estate is a much more different than in that regard than residential. Residential, although you know, I say that um, when things just recently changed <laughs> very significantly on the residential. But let's not, you know, let's let's talk prior to November first. 
your people were pretty aware on the residential side of what they're going to get paid and commercial it could be a whole host of things um so you want to make sure that information's in there all right and then the last slide i think is it just information for me i know i went over i knew i was going to go over my allotted time i apologize ian um but uh i hope it was somewhat useful hey thanks for listening to the people not titles podcast we are proudly sponsored by land trust title services if you enjoyed the podcast please hit the like button please subscribe and we'd love it if you'd share our podcast with your friends thanks a lot